Hi folks, it's your host W. Curtis Preston and I wanted to give you some great news. Druva liked my latest O'Reilly book enough to sponsor it and you can get a free copy by just going to druva.com slash podcast. Hope you like it. This week on No Hardware Required, we're going to talk about Kubernetes and persistent storage. My guests this week are Russ Cantwell, CTO of SHI, and Stephen Manley, our CTO. Thanks for joining. Hi, and welcome to No Hardware Required. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup. And I have with me, of course, our CTO, Stephen Manley. How's it going, Stephen? Oh, I am so excited. This is going to be great. Kubernetes. We never talk about Kubernetes. <laughs> we never... <laughs> At least not, I don't know, today. I haven't talked to anyone about Kubernetes today. Here, I got a question for you, Stephen. And this makes me feel old when I when I hear it. Why why do they spell it with the with the eight in the middle? Why is it K eight? Why why do I feel so old when that well, okay, you're you're not allowed to answer that second question. <laughs> why do they spell it why do they spell it that way? Because it turns out it's hard to spell Kubernetes and no one likes taping all the letters. So if you remember internationalization was I eighteen N. Uh, well, Kubernetes is K8S because there's eight letters between the K and the S. I knew that it was spelled that way. I literally had no idea that's why it was spelled that way. So that makes that actually makes sense, and maybe I'll stop complaining about it. Uh, it, it does remind me I was in the Navy 100 years ago, and we had a guy whose name was 12 characters. And it was so big, you know, in the Navy, you you spell your name on your shirt above your shirt pocket. And it was so long that if he put it on his shirt, it would go around into his armpit. And so that he was authorized to put O, a plus sign, and then 11. And that became his name. Everyone called him O plus 11. So this, <laughs> so this is pretty much just like that. Speaking of people who probably weren't even alive when I was in the Navy, uh, we have the CTO of SHI International, Russ Cantwell. How's it going, Russ? Hello, it's going well. I actually have a, a funny story about the Kates thing. So if the spelling wasn't done that way, my daughter's name might be different. So my what? daughter's name is Kate, and the pronunciation of K-A-T-S is Kates. And when my wife came to me, they're like, she goes, I think we should name uh, our daughter Kate. Yes, honey, I agree with you. And so to this day, I like to say that she was named after Kubernetes, when in reality it wasn't. But I will tell you, that was the first thing that I thought of. The joke was on me, though, because we ended up spelling it with a C instead of a K. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she does have a Kubernetes onesie, uh, and, and it's great. Oh I love goodness. it every time she wears it. That is awesome. I have a friend who, and again, this will this will predate the younger people on this, but does anybody remember Connor hard drives? Do either of you? That was no. a thing. That, that, that was a there was a hard drive manufacturer called Connor, and I had a I had a friend who named his kid Connor after his favorite hard drive. Respect. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> stuck with it. But yeah, so that, this is the first person I've heard that is semi named after Kubernetes. So that's uh, also quite impressive, Russ. Well, you know, it's an incredibly interesting technology. I will tell you. It is the most unopinionated space in technological history, um, which sort of is what makes it fun. Uh, but it also can be maddening and incredibly difficult for my customers to adopt at times. So it keeps me plenty busy. So what does that mean, the most unopinionated space? I am glad that you asked. So this podcast is three hours, I think, just that long. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it really just boils down to this. You know, whenever you look at doing anything in just, I'll just say traditional IT, right? We have 
infrastructure. We have uh, storage servers, VMware. We have best practices around the right way to do things. We have not yet established that for Kubernetes as a whole. And it changes so often that once we have a best way to do something, we either deprecate that way or we change it holistically, even though we didn't deprecate the feature. And so there's just a whole lot of different pieces that go into the entire ecosystem around it. In fact, if you were to go look, there's a uh, there's basically a, a grid that you can click on in the CNCF, so the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, that will show you all of the different products and projects and things that are going on in the incubation stage around cloud native computing, which with which Kubernetes sorts at this sits at the center of, you will find that there are just a million different ways to do things. So I, I constantly talk about this with customers uh, that are going through the phase of, hey, I want to use Kubernetes. Okay, cool. Why? And please tell me it's <laughs> you want to because it's not because it's cool, but because you have a reason. Because I need that reason to be able to give them a guiding light as to what they should ultimately end up doing because they they need those opinions fed to them because if not, it's a never-ending rabbit hole. I, I think I, I'm really glad you said what you said and that I'm glad that I asked what I asked because I think I now finally know why I find Kubernetes so <laughs> frustrating because <laughs> I much prefer the uh, I much prefer the very structured this is what a server is, this is what a VM is, you put a VM here, you put the data there. Uh, I, I guess that so I, I now finally understand why why Kubernetes frustrates me so. You haven't yeah. always wanted to have your own custom resource definition that you can install on a system so it can do whatever you want <laughs> and no one else knows exactly what it is and it's just going to be fine. That that doesn't appeal to you. I love that part. It just seems so wild, wild west to me. It bothers me from a, you know, I just want to back up the data. That's all I care about. You know, I just want to back up the data. And, and that's the other thing, of course, is that the way you can do storage or the ways that you can do storage and especially persistent storage that has changed over time so is there a current best practice that might change by the time this podcast airs <laughs> <laughs> steven you want me to take that one or do you want it yeah yeah why, why don't you start and then uh, and then and then i will pepper you with questions of and examples where people are not doing that certainly so uh, the answer is actually yes there is a standard uh, it took us a while to get here so in Kubernetes, there's there's two different things you have to look out for. You have to look out for things that are upstream Kubernetes, meaning things that are in line with the project's code, and then things that are external to that. For the longest time, when we wanted to do persistent volumes, uh, and, and that was pretty rare to do a few years ago, we used an integration called FlexVol. It was basically a driver. That was an upstream requirement that made it very, very difficult to integrate any form of storage into Kubernetes. And so what we ultimately ended up doing, and this is true of storage as, as well as networking, and you'll probably see this a lot more often, is we move to this thing called the CSI, or the Container Storage Interface, which is external to the upstream code of Kubernetes. But it is basically a plugin. Uh, or a, a specific specification that storage providers can tie into in order to provide things like uh, orchestrated volumes, persistent storage, uh, et cetera. So that's sort of how we tie into it now. And that is the standard that we have at the moment. And I, I do think we're going to be pretty well solidified in this space. But I will tell you that there is another sort of subset of users that do think this is somewhat of a patch job at times, uh, and we'll see um, emerging ways to handle storage moving forward. I think the CSI will be here to stay in general, uh, 
but I do think it won't be the only way to manage storage uh, with inside of a Kubernetes environment long term. Yeah, so so I would I would I would agree with that. I, I certainly think that, and and I think some of the uh, some of the the areas of CSI that that maybe had windows that caused problems, you know, growing a CSI volume, you know, dealing with quotas, those 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 issues are getting sort of you know, the the windows of exposure are getting shrunk, which is great. But I will say the vast majority of deployments I still see right now uh, remind me of the old days of VMware, where uh, the storage people are using is external to the Kubernetes cluster, whether it's a, yep. whether it's a, a NAS store or an object store or an external database or something like that. And 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 frankly, and I'm I'm curious if you see this. You know, in some cases, it's just hey, we're not quite ready for CSI, or you know, our cluster isn't running you know, running a, a new enough version yet. But there's also some religion that says that the people say, no, Kubernetes is meant to be stateless, and I will not put state in my cluster. And and even if I have to have all these weird external dependencies, I will keep the purity of the Kubernetes cluster. And I I don't know if you see that, but uh, but I I get a fair amount of that still. Uh, I do see it. I do not believe it will ever go away because of the nature of people like us. We, we we get our ways about us and we want to do certain things and we will defend it to the grave. So we we absolutely do see that common. And, and really what it comes down to is, is that, you know, Kubernetes was in fact designed to run ephemeral workloads. That's the nature with which it was designed. So from a historic perspective, it actually makes a lot of sense what ended up being the case was, you know, a lot of people will run, say, let's just, I actually had to give this example a few days ago to a customer to help them tie it together. It's like front end versus back end of an application. The front end of an application can fairly easily be ephemeral or stateless. The back end is almost always stateful. And so what we ended up realizing was, was are there benefits to managing more of the back end of our applications in this sort of distributed microservices way? And the answer ended up being yes. But it sort of depends on, do you want to take a very traditional application that runs something like, say, SQL or Oracle and throw that data into a container? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Probably not in a lot of situations. But if you have something a little bit more modern, like a Mongo that's handling some of that stuff, then you probably will be a little bit more distributed in how you run that data. And it may actually make more sense. So it just depends on the structure of the application. What I don't think I need to see people doing, and, and, and I haven't been seeing them do this, is just trying to move everything into a container because it's that new thing. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not a good idea. But yeah, I, I, I definitely have seen that with people. The container storage interface, though, I think is starting to change some people's minds, mm-hmm. in particular because we are seeing pretty much all of the large manufacturers get on board and not just provide support for it, but they're actually providing good implementations to this to where they can actually start providing that, that you know, stateful storage. We're getting stateful set operators with inside of Kubernetes as well to help that move forward. It's really helping a lot. And quite frankly, it's starting to solve some problems that they're realizing they need as it relates to some of these stateful sets, uh, like data protection, for instance. Uh, Stephen, to go back to what you said, you were talking about people were were attaching or are attaching Kubernetes data into traditional storage arrays and you know filers and things like that, very similar to the way they do in, in virtualization. I mean, where where else would you put the data? I, I should be more clear. So so think of it more as um, so in the in the very early days of VMware, um, people would 
you know, create a VM and then that VM would have an NFS mount to a filer so that the VM itself didn't, you weren't using a VMDK, you weren't storing any data in the VM. It really was just file access. Uh, and so I've seen quite a few customers who will either just, again, you know, issue database, you know, calls, or they will issue, again, NFS reads and writes out of their container uh, into an NFS store. So it's not like CSI, because CSI basically says, again, I could go to that same uh, NAS system and say, provision me a volume. Uh, okay. and, and, and then that volume is visible to Kubernetes. In this case, this is more of, I created my container, and my container is, you know, really outside of Kubernetes knowledge, just reaching out and, uh, and, and sort of reading and writing data to a totally external store. So, so okay, that's, so that, you, that's, yeah. that's the step they're taking right now. Gotcha. That make that makes sense. Okay. That makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. It, it, so it creates an awareness that wasn't there before. And I think it's important to understand, even though you may run a stateful set or a stateful workload inside of Kubernetes, you still have this notion of desired state management that happens within the cluster. And the cluster may have behavior that is very, very different from a VM. Like that VM instance is very likely to be up and running all the time. But depending on how you have it, at, uh, your application designed, your container instance very likely will not be. And so it could be you know, ending its state at some point in time for one reason or another, and it needs to come back up somewhere else. And that instance needs to have some form of association with the volume that it was attached to previously. And if you can't provide that, then all sorts of things start of getting out of sync and out of whack. And so that's the CSI and the persistence of the storage volumes uh, that Stephen just described, it will reattach that original volume when that container is respun up and starts running again. It's very, very important to the resilience side of how applications run inside of Kubernetes. Let me ask you the next question then, uh, you know, again, we, we're trying to keep this podcast under three hours. <laughs> so what about things that are like structured data inside Kubernetes? Backing up a volume that's just files is one thing. Backing up a volume that is being continually modified by a structured data, you know, by a database, um, from a data protection standpoint, seems harder. So is it less of, is that done less? Is that less of a, of a uh, best practice to have structured data running inside Kubernetes? Is, is the question around the structure of the data at time of a, of a backup? So like, how would, how would it be structured in that respect? So the, so the question is, you know, we, we were talking about Kubernetes best practices, right? Um, and, and it sounds like CSI has become, you know, one of those best practices. What about the types of things that you would put in a uh, a Kubernetes configuration? Are there apps or things that we tend to do in the IT world that lend themselves more to Kubernetes or whatever the opposite of that is that, that, that become really difficult or problematic to do in Kubernetes, especially when we bring data protection into the picture? Yeah, so I think that... From the, from my in my opinion, or at least from my perspective, almost anything. So the the primary purpose of Kubernetes is to break up an application, or at least that's the way I'm going to define it in this moment. And so if you, if you're leveraging containers to run microservices, your whole idea is is to be able to make an application either more resilient or easier to develop against. And the more resilient part is sort of that explanation I mentioned earlier about this whole idea of 
you know, assuming going from trying to avoid failure to assuming it will happen and handling it gracefully, you break things into microservices that can spin up and do that. When you do that, it changes the nature of an application of its dependencies. All of the different things that you think about whenever you are thinking of what makes an application. So from a best practices perspective, it sort of changes too. You say to yourself, what considerations do I have when thinking about data protection? And you know what? What are the things that? What are the challenges we have if we want to talk about it? So it's sort of what is the definition of an application within Kubernetes? That's sort of number one. You have to figure out what that application is. How does a developer record the dependencies? You know, against said application is 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 it custom resource definitions? Are they just resources? Are they objects? And then ultimately, how does data protection really work in in your tenancy? Like, do you have a multi-tenant environment? Are you backing up the in, entire thing for one tenant? Can you do it granularly? So there's a lot of key questions that we have to ask, and they have different considerations around storage, the application resilience, or, or even, quite frankly, the cluster itself. So if you look at those considerations from a storage perspective, we have the CSI, which we quite literally just talked about. So that could be volume-based snapshots uh, that you would basically take. Uh, you might be able to even, depending on the array or product, just use a snapshot and a consistency group in order to take very base level understandings of what that volume does. If you move to the application level, though, which is really where you probably should be focusing on this, Amen. is <laughs> it, it, it becomes sort of two different approaches. You have application-centric recovery, this would be focused on things like capturing the entire Kubernetes application. So that's a lot of pieces here. I'll just name a few, like manifests the persistent data if it has some dependent resources. You then also have to consider rescheduling them on another remote cluster and all that information that comes with it. You, the other side of this is infrastructure-related things. So you would have focused recovery on the storage itself, how it's integrated into Kubernetes, uh, what things are running on that. And then external to that is the cluster. So bits and pieces like configuration data that you would need to consider, like primarily backing up these applications are you need to understand application data, configuration data, and then objects. And you need to make them behave as a single unit. That's your challenge here. And when you do that, you have to take all these bits and pieces into, into consideration. We didn't have to do that the same way we did before. Before, it was all about timing. It's like, can I take a snapshot of this application in this point in time without breaking my database? And if you could, you were good. <laughs> it, it's just a lot more complicated now because we have to consider the infrastructure side, the application side, all of the dependencies that go into that portion and then keep them consistent in a way that you can recover them in a usable manner, whether it be here or somewhere else, because Kubernetes just provides so much mobility that people end up doing what some might consider to be unnatural things with the data and the application once they get to this point. Though I would say that while I agree it's more complicated, in a lot of ways it's it's freeing too. Uh, because I, I know for me, one of the things I've always been frustrated with in the backup and in the storage space is outside of, I know it's a database. I never knew what the actual application was though. And, and customers would say, well, we're going to have to do DR. And I'm like, well, I got the data for your database. Beats the heck out of me what you do from there. You know, is your application, <laughs> did it have some VMs? Did it depend on some, some NAS shares? We just didn't know. And, and while it, it's a lot more work, the opportunity, the ability to actually get, you know, sort of follow the breadcrumbs that Kubernetes leaves us so that we can get an application as opposed to just, you know, some component and then hope the customer knows how to stitch it together. 
for for me, it, it's exciting, right? Because it lets us move up the stack and have a very different conversation and have a very different role than again the old sort of can I get the snapshot done? Can I can I stream enough data fast enough and deduplicate it enough that that I, I you know I hit somebody's cost metric, and 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 it's a much more interesting conversation. You bring up a point I hadn't even considered. Uh, and I agree holistically because if you think about the nature, I mean, if you think of what we do, like we'll do cloud readiness assessments at SHI in order to move customers or, or allow them to understand what it means to move from on-premises to a public cloud. And the bulk of that work is, is largely understanding application dependencies because most people, quite frankly, they just don't know them inside and out. But whenever you deploy an application inside of Kubernetes, you are quite literally describing what an application is to the cluster and what its desired state should be and the things that tie into that. So you actually do have this little window into what the application is and should look like and what pieces it's going to touch in a much more, I guess you could say, transparent way than what we used to be able to do. Now, I don't know how that'll change when we move from, say, YAML-based creation to primitive-based creation, which we are we are seeing more and more of. And I think it'd be better for developers once we do. But I think that's a very interesting point is it does provide an opportunity to do things in a much more application-centric way because the infrastructure is, by design, application-centric. You gave me some hope there, and then you dashed it on the rocks when you mentioned YAML versus primitive. <laughs> so <laughs> you want to explain what you meant when you said that? Yeah, it's actually relatively simple. So YAML is just a, a format that we, it's very human readable. So it's actually viewed as very simplistic. Uh, this is a very common conversation I end up having with operations teams or our customers. It's whenever you look at YAML file, it is a descriptor. It is a, I want, this is the way I describe it, actually. It is the difference between going to the store with a list of ingredients and picking out what you want to eat for dinner, taking it home, following instructions and making it yourself. A YAML file is like, it's very declarative in nature. When you go to a restaurant and you say, I want a steak, medium rare, and mashed potatoes, it just goes in the back and it comes back out and you have what you ordered. That is what a YAML file it is. It is a it is a server taking your order and going to the cluster and providing back to you what you described that you want. So it's the des desired state configuration file. That is something that is really, really cool and beneficial and relatively easy for operators to do. So ops guys in the data center. Developers, however, one, they're not human. Um, they speak a different language. And so the human readable nature... They don't like human readable things. Yeah, they don't like human readable things. They want to deal in development priv primitives, right? So they want CDKs in order to uh, actually work on, uh, on whatever it is they're doing, whatever they're deploying. So their application that they've developed, they want to be able to use the primitives inside of the development process to use that to generate a YAML file, which is something that we will be seeing coming. In fact, a few different providers have that today, at least in beta format, like AWS has it, for instance. So that's what's going to change. Maybe my hopes weren't dashed that much, but as long as we're generating and there is a YAML file that humans can look at, uh, is that does that really change anything then? It, it changes the willingness to adopt the way this, like these applications are developed and released, as well as it sort of, it, it simplifies the process. So ironically, it's a bunch of really confusing words that sort of get you jumbled up when you talk about them, but it does make things easier at the end of the day for developers. And then it allows, because it is still human readable for the, for the operator 
to be able to look at it, examine it, and see if anything from their perspective needs to be adjusted. Or quite frankly, they may actually get information that states it does need to be adjusted and they can adjust the YAML file that way. Okay. So my hope is back. So that's, so that's (laughs) brought you back. (laughs) I just know that YAML ain't markup language. I just know that. That's right. (laughs) <laughs> By the way, I had I had to Google that to find. I was googling what I did. I knew what YAML was. I didn't know what what its acronym stood for, and uh, I found out it means YAML ain't markup language. All right. Well, we we try to keep these somewhere around twenty minutes, and we've definitely gone over that. So let's end this here. Especially we we've ended it on hope. So I feel good. Th- uh, thanks, Russ, for uh, being on the podcast again. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. And thanks, Stephen, for uh, confusing me with the history of virtualization. It's what I do. (laughs) All right. And thanks to the listener. And make sure that you subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And remember, here at Druva, there's always no hardware required.